0: In 2015, Marlon James became the first Jamaican-born writer to win the Booker Prize with his novel A Brief History of Seven Killings. It was also the first Booker triumph for his UK publisher One World, who went on to win it again the following year with Paul Beattie's The Sellout. In this episode of How We Made, we'll discover where this big novel of many voices began, how a relatively new publisher found their place amongst the big players, and also gain an insight into the minds of those Booker judges.
1: In the eight lanes and in Copenhagen City, all you can do is watch. Sweet talking voice on the radio say that crime and violence are taking over the country. And if change ever going to come, then we will have to wait and see. But all we can do down here in the eight lanes is see and wait. And I see shit water run free down the street and I wait. And I see my mother take two men for $20 each and one more who paid $25 to stay in instead of pull out. And I wait. And I watch my father get so sick and tired of her that he beat her like a dog. And I see the zinc on the roof rust itself brown. And then the rain bat a hole into it like foreign cheese. And I see seven people in one room and one pregnant and people fucking anyway. Because people so poor that they can't even afford shame. And I wait.
0: Marne James there reading from the opening of his 700-page epic, giving voice to Bam Bam, just one of 12 narrators in a book that contains over 75 characters. But before we get into the book's scope, I wanted, as ever, to know where it all began for him.
1: Um, actually, brief history began before I even knew I was a writer. Brief history began in 1991, when um, Timothy White wrote a sort of a... What would you call it an addendum, a, co- a postscript? Let's call it that for his biography of Bob Marley called Catch a Fire. And I remember the magazine it was Spin Magazine, I remember even Jane's Addiction was on the cover. And um, it was a he he updated quite a few sections from the original book, including a much longer section on the on the the attempt to kill Bob Marley in 1976. And this is something that. Everybody in Jamaica knows about, nobody in Jamaica talks about. Um, So to hear that, to, to hear such, for me, new information, to the point of even naming names, was shocking for me. It was something that was shocking, was something that was haunting, especially when the article went into the afterlives of some of these people. Most of the men... Well, boys who tried to kill Bob Marley were murdered or, you know, killed in a reprise in reprisals. The the few that survived went on to have quite the impact. And um, that was it was something that was fascinating for me. But I guess maybe I I totally forgot about it or it was incubating for a good, you know, near 20 years Um, because. I didn't think about it again until, you know, two novels in, and that was years later. Um, the idea came back to me in about maybe 2010, which would have been one year after my second novel came out. And it didn't come to me as a fully formed idea, actually. It came to me in spurts. I actually tried to write my shortest novel with this. It turned out to be my longest, which is <laughs> hilarious. Um but I was trying to write a really quick crime novel about a confused, conflicted Chicago hitman who is who is who is charged with killing this guy who may have been involved in the Bob Marley killing. But the whole point is that this guy was the last living person, and they're just tying something up. And he wouldn't have any idea of the the, the huge consequences of his actions or the the significance of his actions. And I tried to write that. I thought it would be good 180 pages like these French crime novels that I love so much. And um and it would be I'd be one and done. And um and I realized I couldn't finish it. I reached a certain point writing that novel and just couldn't finish it. So I did what I usually do, which is fine, I'll just start another novel. And um this one was about the character who ended up being called Bam Bam, and it was about life in a in, in in a really, really, really horrible Jamaican slum. And I've actually written a different version of this before, where the character was a woman, but I revisited it. And um and you know, again, I'm just I'm not trying to write long novels. People don't understand. I, I seem to be known for long novels now. I wasn't trying to be long. But even with that novel and with the third one I tried to write, I kept running into these dead ends. And I just, I had these three unfinished novellas, not knowing what the hell to do with them, not even realizing yet that they were linked. And I remember having di- dinner with my friend Rachel, who sadly is no longer with us. And I said to Rachel, you know, I don't know whose story this is. And she said to me, why do you think it's one person's story? And she also sent me back to read um, Faulkner's, William Faulkner's As I Lay Dying. And and that became the eureka moment, that it was not one person's story that I was trying to tell. Um, and that was fine, that a story doesn't have to be about one character. The Bob Marley thing happened almost by accident, that it just ended up being, without me realizing it, this sort of, event that all these characters were revolving around um bam bam was a person who had a kind of awakening when he sees bob marley you know in his house um you know the the, the hitman is going after the last person maybe the last person alive although at the time he by the time i got to the book he wasn't um you know even the character of nina burgess is somebody who was still watching this marley character and um and I between that and I think because I was also reading Bolano's Savage Detectives at the time, which again is about multiple characters surrounding one or two characters, that the novel started to take shape. And the great thing about about realizing I had a novel is that I also had a good two hundred pages already, <laughs> <laughs> because I've been writing all these failed novellas, which were just sections of you know of a bigger narrative. And really, that's how. it it started to take shape, you know. Um, One of the things I've noticed in my novels is that the turning point never happens because of anything I did. I wish I was that smart. Um, My turning points always happen from some loose conversation with somebody and uh, an epiphany strikes me that day to even realize. Um, Rachel wasn't trying to save my novels. She was saying, you know, maybe you actually have one. Um, you know, even Book of Night Woman. Before I wrote a good 200 pages, before it actually became the, about the Night Woman, it wasn't until you know I was talking to an African poet, a poet who used to live in in what used to be the Congo, and she mentioned how matrilineal societies were, and that was a eureka moment. I'm like, what if I had a matrilineal society on a slave plantation? So yeah, I you know, it's 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 listening to other people and realizing. What I didn't see that was right in front of me, that there was the bones, well, more than the bones, um of a novel that was already, you know, the novel was already happening, whether I knew it was a novel or not.
0: With those three separate novellas that you'd been working on, was there then a, presumably a, a huge amount of work still to do to bring those together into a sort of coherent narrative for a novel?
1: Well, yes, there was a huge amount of work because, um, one, I still didn't know what kind of focus the book would have. Um, I didn't realize that it would be basically five chapters where each chapter was essentially a single day. Um you, you know, it's it's and especially and, and some of these characters, you know, the first line I wrote in brief history, I think is now on page five hundred and eighteen. It wasn't just that now that I have all of these words that a novel was there. A lot of those words didn't make a novel. You know, if somebody were to ask, did I write that book in a chronological order, The answer is absolutely not. <laughs> it, it, it's um, There was a, so much more work to be done. I also had to let go of my influences. I realized that I actually did not want to write Savage Detectives. I got very bored very quickly with different characters revolving around the same people and the same event. What I became more interested in is what is... What, is the cons- what are, rather, the consequences of a singular event? Can one thing completely derail and change the, the trajectory of a character's life? And that's ultimately what happened, whether through their choices, whether through deliberate action, or whether through simply being in the wrong place at the wrong time, all these characters end up on a trajectory that they wouldn't have been on otherwise. And I became very interested in that in a very sort of, I guess, forensic kind of way. I wanted to know, okay, if you are running away, where are you in a year? Where are you in two years? Where are you in 10 years? Do you ever stop running? And um, because I was continually interested in the afterlives of my characters, the story itself got bigger and bigger and bigger.
0: There's a substantial cast of characters, and I wanted to know how you managed to keep track of them all when you were writing it, because I've got this vision of you with a wall covered in post-it notes.
1: I just have these really, really huge notebooks that I could use as spreadsheets. Hmm. So I mean, I have post-its, but I did have spreadsheets with characters, um, because, yeah, there were just so many of them. And if it left up to my devices, I will start playing favorites. And, you know, one character will end up being overwritten another one underwritten. And I think, um, again, when you're dealing with a big, you know, I guess it's the closest I've ever come to writing a social novel. Um, When you're dealing with such a a huge cast, you have to know what they're up to at all times, even if that doesn't appear in the book. So, yeah, it it, it was sometimes thrilling and sometimes infuriating keeping tabs on so many people. But that was honestly the only way. To one, not play favorites, and to not end up in a situation where he you just end up with a series of pastiches, really.
0: As the title suggests, this is a book which contains violence, but it's also a book which is shot through with humour, and it often comes from the language that's used by the characters. It seems as though you were having a lot of fun with that. Is that true?
1: It is true, and I think people are usually surprised because the the, the reputation for violence sometimes outstrips the reputation for humour. That um that you know, it's it's not it's not necessarily that it's a funny book, and I don't think I write funny books, but I do write characters who laugh at their situations. And I do write characters who are in some in a lot of cases, a lot of times they yes, they are the smartest person in their room. And um and and you know, and that kind of re self self awareness, that cynicism sometimes or that this that need for humor, um, you know, comes through. It's it, you know, I mean, especially for the characters who are in the situations that I put my characters in, they they have to find reasons to laugh.
0: You mentioned earlier about trying not to have favorites when writing. Now that some years have passed, can you admit to having any favorites looking back?
1: You know, now that there is you know some 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 distance between um, me and that novel, I mean, I do see. Traits of characters that are directly taken from me, which is something that had you asked me this five years ago, I'd have I would have emphatically denied it, um, and <laughs> be a little offended, honestly. <laughs> uh, but no, yeah, I do see, I do see. There's a quite a bit of me in Nina Burgess, for example. Um, mm. like her, I am not. I am not. Um. You know, in Jamaica, we call rich people uptown people and, and poor people downtown people. So, you know, I am not I'm, I was not uptown, but I was uptown adjacent, which is what which is what, you know, which is what Nina is. She's uptown adjacent, meaning she had the schooling. She had the education. She has the demeanor. She says it, you know, that, um, you know, she has what people look for in beauty queens. She says at one point. Mm-hmm. Um. So, yeah, and we have that. What we don't have is a social class. Um, you know what we don't have is the mobility. What we don't have is the lighter color skin, mm. and, and and so I am, so there's a lot about her I identify with a lot because as I said I I, I sound like somebody from that social class, but I'm not.
0: In the same way that the roots of Marlon's writing of the book extend back a long way, so does its publication by One World in the UK. Publisher Juliet Maybe explains how she first fell in love with his writing.
2: I had been thinking of setting up a fiction list for quite some months, years actually, and obviously hadn't made any progress with it. So I was at Frankfurt in 2008 and decided I would just start telling agents and rights people that I wanted to set up a fiction list and I wanted it to have that breadth and excitement that books like A Purple Hibiscus and The Kite Runner and, and um, you know, The Color Purple had, you know, the sort of um, books that I suppose now we're quite well known for, you know, books, books that travel the world for the reader. And um, I happened to be talking to the, um, the rights person of Trident um, Media in, in New York at Frankfurt. And she said, Oh, I think I've got just the book for you. And it was the book of Nightwomen by Marlon James. And it was his second novel. And um, it's not an exaggeration to say that I absolutely fell in love with Marlon's writing from the very first sentence. And in fact, I've had the same reaction to everything I've read of Marlon's ever since. Um, I'd read a shopping list if he wrote it. Um, But somehow, despite uh, Marlon's absolutely mesmerizing voice. Um, Other editors at the time hadn't thought a novel set on a slave plantation in Jamaica at the end of the 18th century about a slave revolt organized by women written entirely in Jamaican patois wouldn't sell in the UK. So so, um, luckily for me, I immediately thought Um, being completely um, wet behind the ears for fiction and um, decided that I knew better and I loved it and I followed my passion and I bought it and um, we were very so it's the very first novel I published at One World which was up till then a non-fiction publisher and um, we were incredibly lucky that quite a few other people also fell in love with it like Nick Barley at the Edinburgh Festival invited Marlon to speak, although he was a debut author whose, whose first novel had been published by wonderful indie press in, in New York hadn't um, been published here. So he was a completely unknown um, uh, author as far as the UK was concerned. Um, so because I bought um, The Book of Nightwomen, it came with, I insisted on, an option to buy his next book. So um, a few years later, I was sent 40,000 words of a partial manuscript, and given a week or two to give my answer. And um, I didn't hesitate. I mean, Marlon's voice is incredibly distinctive, and um, a brief history of seven killings is obviously, even from 40,000 words, which is actually a tiny proportion of the manuscript as it turns out, is so ambitious and so original. Um, I, I bought the rights immediately and I absolutely adored it. And I feel exactly the same today as I felt in 2011. I just am passionate about, about the book. And I, I mean, editors aren't allowed, like parents, they're not allowed favourites. And I would never say this to any of my other authors, but it probably is the book closest to my heart.
0: Is there an element of risk in buying a book when you've only been able to read a small portion of it?
2: I mean, I have absolute confidence in Marlon, Um It did feel slightly risky because it was quite clear from 40,000 words where you're really only just getting into the story at that point that it was going to be a very, very big novel and you're worried perhaps as an editor that uh, can the author keep the reader in the story and weave all these themes back together again because the, the novel is... Takes you on an insanely violent, um, expansive roller coaster ride with all these various people drawn in. I mean, the the, the, the basic premise of the novel was that, um, you know, obviously Marlon comes from Jamaica, and in 1976, just before a general election, there was an attack on Bob Marley. They tried to kill him. It was an assas- attempted assassination, and no one's ever been. Um, no one's ever been accused of these crimes, but there are a lot of rumors um, about about who who might have done it, and there's a lot of misinformation and and you know different theories keep popping up. And Marlon was obviously very aware of this and thought it'd be really interesting to look at who was around at the time and and who could have been involved or what forces were involved. And so he was it, it was it was a very original concept, but it was also very ambitious and. And so it's a sort of a, a, a political crime novel, I suppose, a thriller, but by a literary author, which is, you know, <laughs> not always the case. And and a huge, I mean, you know, Marlon's books, I think each one's got longer than the one before it, but um, it was obviously going to be a very big book. So I suppose my only concern really was, will not whether I would love it, because I knew that I would, um, but I was worried if readers would be able to, stay with the story and love the story as much as I did but I think my worries were largely unfounded I mean I think what what a lot of editors I don't know if one can say all editors um, I don't know all editors but I think what a lot of editors are looking for is something that's really fresh and original because we're we're reading we're reading so many novels all the time and I think that um Personally, I do love novels that take you out of your own experience and to see the world through someone else's eyes, because I think that's what fiction does so well. I think it's it, it opens these ex- windows on extraordinary experiences and transports you to them. I think that's precisely why so many people read fiction and it encourages empathy and it encourages understanding of others. But in this particular case, I think it's, you know, I was a huge fan, like like most people in Britain, I think, of Dickens. And I think this book is is very Dickensian. It has this massive cast of characters. It's obviously obviously hugely long. Um, It's got a hefty page count. And it's got these numerous interweaving storylines. That um, And and in the finished novel, um, it displays tremendous mastery of the plot as well as the prose. The the characters are incredibly well drawn and realistic, Um, each one written in their own particular patois you know it's i think the book of night women was written in jamaican patois but i think in many ways it was easier to read because your brain starts adjusting to it very quickly but in this book you dip in and out of 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 different dialects and patois and i think it does it is a more challenging read which is not to say it's not more rewarding i think it is but um i think um for me the um it's just so original, so ambitious, so bursting with exuberance and you've got this cacophony of different voices and dialects. To me, it was just, I suppose to me, it's a dream book. It's, it's, its you know, even if it hadn't won the Booker Prize and, and therefore be stamped, get that stamp of approval, I think it, in itself, it's, it's just got this tremendous energy and confidence and imagination. And I think that's not... It's not common to find all these things in one novel I don't think and Marlon is such a master of dialogue whether whether the characters speaking Jamaican patois or American slang or it's an English journalist stuttering around um you know and he's got the <laughs> No I'm sorry I'm turning out an awful fan but um he's got the most gorgeous prose imaginable I mean he's absolutely at the top of his game um it's very hard to see that this is only his this was only his third novel um He's, he's just so talented. I think every author must have this incredible author envy. I, I don't know, is it book envy? Author, I don't know, but um, it seems effortless. I know, I mean, the book took four years to write, so it's obviously not effortless, but um, it's it's got this, um, I don't know, and, and a lot of people focus so much on the violence in the novel, um, but to me, I think there's just, a lot of humour in in it. I think it, it'd be great if you could get Marlon to read sections. I'm not even going to going to try, but he's got so many sentences in it that are just a joy. You're reading them, you get these little little. It's like little bursts of joy coming coming at you because the 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 writing is 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 just so surprising. There's not a cliche in the book. I mean, I'm I mean, as I say, I think you should get Marlon to to read something for you in in a proper accent, but. Um, It's just little things like, um, which you would never think of if you are a writer, like um, there's this character Weeper and he says, Weeber think it an even match, they with the power, he he with being right. And I just think you just wouldn't write that yourself, would you? You wouldn't think of it. And he's got another one. He says, I hope you little boy can swim because I just saw him running to the pool. And you go, yeah, that's funny, actually, (laughs) as a parent. And he's he's describing this... um, boy in the slums they they've got these um the story has these um gangs of slum boys who are le- loosely affiliated to certain political parties and are used by them for various things and he's got this sentence where he says the boy from concrete jungle on the same girly green scooter i just think girly green scooter it's just i don't know it's just a joy i think i think it's just a joy to read and and yet you know it is violent and um, you know, some people say quite a few of my novels are, are dark. I think that's a that's a, that's a polite way of saying quite violent. But I think in I think it's almost as if that becomes the the, the sort of contrast between the violence and the 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 sheer joyful exuberance of the writing is just such a lovely combination. And I get immersed in the at the level of the sentence. There's so much humour and originality. I, I it might the feeling I get reading Marlon's work is like I once watched a clip of these polar bears in a British zoo when it starts snowing and they just couldn't believe their luck they just ran out into the snow and rolled over in it and kicked it up and that's kind of what I feel when I start reading Marlon I just think it's such an extraordinarily satisfying experience it's like you you you're in a happy place.
0: We return now to Marlon James and the question raised by writing a book which just keeps growing and growing. How do you know when it's finished?
1: Oh, I had no idea when it was finished i in fact, I think i wrote I wrote on a good twenty thirty pages until I realized you know but but the voice in my head went, "You're done, fool <laughs> you know you know it's because because brief history doesn't end, it stops, and i stop because of that, I think even I didn't believe it. I think, okay, this is not an ending. I need closure, I need to tie everything up I need." to say something profound like the end of James Joyce's The Dead. Um, and and then I realized, no, I think a novel ends when you run out of stuff to say. And I think um, the, the stuff that I was writing was just retreading things that I've already said or finding a way to tie up a point that was already made, not as elegantly, but it was made. And to trust that that was the ending. And, and it took me a while to to accept that. The, the, the novel had ended a good 20, 30 pages before I stopped writing.
0: And were you surprised at all about how enthusiastically the book was received in the UK?
1: I, you know, I'm, listen, I, I think as a writer, I'm always surprised that anybody wants to read my book. <laughs> I'm, I'm still, you know, people are like, I really love your book. And my usual response is, why? And <laughs> <laughs> not that I have any contempt for the novel, the novels I've written. But I think I, you know, I spent so much of my space just coming up with these stories and being worried if they'd be accepted. Um, a lot of, you know, a lot of brief history was for me risky. It was, you know, there, there are parts of it where, you know, I was reading lots of Virginia Woolf and, and I was playing with stream of consciousness. And I remember thinking this will never fly and then thinking, you know what? I'll just leave it until my editor says take it out, and he never said it. he never did. Um, so I, you know, to me, brief history was in a lot of ways me pushing, for me at least, the boundaries of what could be achieved in a novel. Certainly, from me, um, my previous novel, in a very way, is a very sort of. Classic in a sense of Victorian, almost, or even nineteenth-century idea of what a novel is, and that's because it was hugely inspired by nineteenth-century novels and well, eighteenth-century novels, and 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 you know, eighteenth-century novel takes up a huge section of that story. Um, this was sort of me, you know, listening to dub records and 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 the weirdest, the weirdest music. A lot of it wasn't even reggae. In fact, a lot of it was Adam and the ants. Shockingly enough, really. Uh, oh yeah, I was listening to his Peel sessions when I was writing huge chunks of this book. I have no idea what that means. <laughs> I leave that for my therapist. Um, <laughs> but it's it was it was you know it was me for a large part flying blind. So it, I was I am I was surprised and I am surprised that it had uh, such an audience. I really did think, though, that maybe people would be curious about the Bob Marley part, even though Bob Marley's gone by, you know, one-third of the way in the book, if not earlier. Um, but, yeah, I, I, you know, I was surprised, but, of course, pleasantly so.
2: So, obviously, we'd, we'd published one book with him before, and so when we came to this book, we knew him, we'd met him, um, and... Um, I think there was a lot more, obviously, a lot more anticipation for this one. I mean, even the early reviews were very much talking about, you know, most anticipated novel of the year and that sort of thing. So we had a quite an advantage in, um, with The Book of Nightmare, where we, you know, it was very much um, more of an effort to, to get people to read it and to get enthusiastic about it. But I think with with um, A Brief History of Seven Killings, it we had a lot of... Um, a lot of reviewers jumped straight in. I think the New York Times came in first, which is always very helpful. So um, the, we we got quite a lot of positive reviews from the get go, and he had quite a lot of fans already even before before he was longlisted. You know, he was getting um, some really great um, quotations from um, from um, like Irvine Welsh said it called it um, a vivid plunge into a crazed, violent, and corrupt world. Told through multiple narrators and executed with swaggering aplomb, the most original novel I've read in years. And, and that wasn't unusual at the time. You know, people might have. Um, I think the Times was quite funny. They they said brief. The title is ironic, which um, clearly, 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 a few people criticised the title for for um, for um, not being totally historical and not not being at all brief. But um, I think. Um, I think it was just a joy. And we we, he'd obviously had a lot of fans in, as I say, Nick Barley, Edinburgh Festival, the Edinburgh um, International Book Festival was hugely enthusiastic of his work and immediately booked him to come up. And um, luckily, by the time he got there, he was already longlisted for the booker. So um, he, you know, he had a lot of um, other things to do. He was filmed by the BBC and Channel Four when he got there because, in case he got on the shortlist, they were then filming people if they came through, just in case. And um, which was a wonderful experience. And Ben DePierre, who's the head of Channel Four News, uh, Channel Four was filming him, and insisted on sitting in on the interview because he loved the book so much. So you, you had you really got that sense that, or um, well, I, I certainly did. Maybe I suppose people who had negative views wouldn't be talking to me, but. But you really got that sense that people were hugely enthusiastic about this novel and really felt it was something special.
0: And one world is now synonymous with book of success, but I wonder if you can tell us what it was like winning
1: that first time.
2: <laughs> well, um, unlike unlike some editors, I'm afraid I always tell my authors they're not going to win.
1: She told me from the Cheltenham Festival she doesn't think I was going to win, <laughs> and I didn't think so either. I think she was trying to put my put my fears at rest
2: because I feel that they can then enjoy the dinner and and I do the. The, the speech which um to be fair um gabby wood tells people that it's such a such um a privilege to be shortlisted i mean she shouldn't use the word privilege but you know what i mean that that really all the shortlisters are winners and um so i wasn't nervous at all because um i think the the word on the street was that a little life was going to win
1: and um well i did enter is it guildhall i did enter Guildhall thinking i wasn't going to win And I started to behave that way because I don't think I was a favorite. But then again, Booker, the Booker Prize does have a tradition where the pre-Booker favorite doesn't win. Yeah. Um, Anyway, so, you know, I, I, that night, I resolved to, you know what, I'm just going to enjoy myself. And it was funny because right before they're going to announce the winner, I actually went to the bathroom because I forget I don't need to be here. (laughs) And I... I don't think of to this day. I have yet to ever be pursued by a woman into a men's room <laughs> to I, to make sure that I go back to go back to the hall. And am I, <laughs> I, I don't know if they knew that I had already won. I knew quite a few people in the room already knew that I had won.
2: And we didn't know at that point that the journalist sitting at our table with us already knew already knew that um, Marlon had won. And she leant across to him very casually. And said, um, if you if you were to win, um, it would be really nice if, if maybe you could just not thank your mother and your editor, but say something interesting about fiction.
1: It's funny, the journalist who was at my table knew I won from in the morning. And she asked me if I'd written a speech. And I was like, no, nah, I'm not going to win. I didn't write a speech. And she was like, I think you should write a speech. I'm like, no, <laughs> I mean, I have a list of people to thank, but I'm good. She's like, I really think you should write a speech. <laughs> and I'm like, no, I'm good. Of course, my speech must be the, the, the wildest and craziest and, and, and loosest one ever given at a Booker Prize ceremony. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even know you were supposed to give an acceptance speech. I think I went up there and said some rambling stuff and I was gone in five minutes. Uh, because I really didn't expect to win at all.
2: And of course, Marlon, being being a a public speaker part excellence, a few minutes later is told he's won, and he gets up and he gives this most extraordinary um, speech about fiction, which was just stunning, and um, off the cuff. <laughs> so, um, but yes, for, it obviously was transformative for us as a, as a publishing company. I mean, I'm very proud of the novels that we'd published. Um, this was our sixth year in fiction, so I was very proud of the novels that we'd published in those six years. But I think it gave us a sort of credibility as a publisher, which allowed us to then be more ambitious in what we published and a little bit more confident that perhaps reviewers would sit up and, and take note if we sent them a, a book to review. Because what you want, apart from sales, and of course every publisher must have sales to survive, but what you really want is that your authors receive the attention they deserve and having the kind of leverage that a book a booker win or two gives you. Um, does help and it helps all our authors and that's really important
1: but you know i i was surprised i mean also you know there's a part of me personally that thinks like you know these things don't happen to me Mm. Um but it did and you know it is people ask did it change your life of course it did it changed it in very profound ways for one, i was selling books now that's a whole new thing for a writer it's like (laughs) it's like um And, you know, it's 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 the thing about the Booker Prize is even with it now being open to Americans, it's still such a commonwealth thing that yeah. overnight somebody in Nigeria knows who you are or or somebody in 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 Mumbai. And they're curious, and mm-hmm. and if they like your book, then it becomes celebrated, you know, in different places. And you know, not long after the Booker Prize, I was in Jaipur, and this this the the the, the curiosity and the 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 um, not just the curiosity, but that people had read it and that, and that they have seen something that connected with them um, in it. I think was, I think was phenomenal, but I also, and I think that really wouldn't have happened without, you know, without the Book of Prize.
0: If that was the view from the outside, what was it like to be one of the judges that year, and how unanimous was their decision? To give us a peek behind the curtain, we hear now from Sam Leith, author, journalist, literary editor of The Spectator, and one of those inside the room where it happened. With so many books to read for the prize, was Seven Killings one he fell in love with instantly?
3: I think I probably wouldn't say instantly in the sense that it was you know because you're reading one a day there was I think a bit of it that sort of barrier goes up and you're like oh Christ this one's 700 pages long and dense you know um and but you know I was aware that there was really something there as you know on my first on my first reading and my first kind of go through and it, it obviously the way that Booker is set up, is you have a series of meetings every 20 or 30 books. I mean, each panel does it differently, but this seems to be more or less standard. You have a meeting every 20 or 30 books, and you sort of go, which one's one's interesting, which one's going to go through? And in that first meeting, this was very much one that we all agreed, like, this needs another look. We need to, you know, there's something here. And by the time it got to the shortlisting meeting, I think we'd all had the chance to digest it really properly, and you know had had a second read or a sort of first and a half read or however you know you want to characterize it and we realized that there was you know it's got it does take some taking in because it's a book that has this sort of operatic range um it's doing something i mean i something sort of different in the first section or couple of sections from the one it's doing, you know, it, t- it takes a weird left turn, you know, when it suddenly goes to Miami and New York and, you know, you're, <laughs> the, the, the Aristotelian unities are very much not being observed there. And, you know, Marley checks out and suddenly you're in another, another world and another story in a later period. And, of course, it does all connect, you know, inevitably and importantly and magnificently. Um, but, as I say, it's, you know, the, there's so much going on in there you know there's sort of these influences from you know i mean james elroy is is an influence there's a kind of um register to it that has an almost kind of biblical note going through i mean i love the way that you know marley is always the singer you know he's he's never bob marley it's got a sort of mythological strength to it and and of course the the thread that runs through it is this magnificent character i mean i don't want to sell the novel's literary quality short by calling him a baddie but he is you know he's one of the great sort of monsters i think of recent literature you know he's got that extraordinary trajectory through the book into this you know character is very much you know i am the one who knocks and i think that um you know one of the real sort of achievements of Marlon James in that book is, you know, he doesn't shy away from providing some really kind of basic narrative satisfactions. You know, it's a complicated book. It's a dense book. It's linguistically challenging. It's got all sorts of things going on. But, you know, Marlon James, he grew up reading, you know, crime novels and Marvel comics and all sorts of things. And he he kind of recognizes that you know, there's a kind of basic storytelling oomph in there. Um, and as witness, you know, he he went on, instead of writing a, you know, slender, tortured campus novel, um, you know, his next book was, you know, a, the beginnings of a big fantasy trilogy.
0: To win the book, it seems to me that a novel has to improve with each successive reading rather than deteriorate. Was that the case here?
3: Yes, this absolutely did that. And I think I'm not giving I I think I'm not breaking confidentiality too much to say it was against what I think was a very strong shortlist Um, you know it was it was a very clear winner and in fact I don't think I've ever been in a judging meeting where the final meeting was was as quick Um, I mean essentially I I sort of this is how I remember it so we went around the table you know the idea being that that we'd each start by saying you know whether there was one book that we all you know, liked above the other ones. And I think we, we're about halfway through this process, but I was up my hand and said, look, we could cut this shorter. Has anyone not got seven killings at the top of their list? And there was a sort of uh, no. And then I, for the sake of argument, kind of tried, said, okay, let's half-heartedly say, if we were making a case against this book, what would we say? And again, it was very tricky to make a case against it. I think the only one you could make is, it, it you know it's broken backed why is why doesn't it stop with mali's death or why doesn't it stay in jamaica um but as i said earlier you know thematically and in terms of the arc of josie and the story of the post colonial jamaican diaspora which is you know what it's talking about and it's sort of winding up you know politics and commerce and gang warfare and drugs you know in which mali is a kind of you know, linchpin at the beginning, it's, you know, that story goes where that story goes. And that's the story of the book. Um, So as as I say, you know, we made a very feeble and half-hearted attempt to, to make the case against the book. But, you know, unlike a couple of other books on the shortlist, which had divided opinion quite strongly and which had, you know, had had very strong advocates and, you know, very strong detractors. This was one where I think everybody agreed. It was a, consummately achieved work of art.
0: There's no getting away from the fact that some readers find the prospect of a 700-page book daunting. So, do Marlon and Sam have any words of encouragement?
1: Well, I mean, you know, I would say that, you know, remember that there, there's there, that one of the thrills of Richard can also be to get lost in a book. Mm. Um, uh, somebody who reviewed another book of mine said that the book has a cast of characters which she thought was cross-purposes because you read Marlon James to get lost. And I was like, you know what? I don't read it always just into critics, but I will take that. <laughs> that. Sometimes you can read a novel to get lost. I read Tolstoy to get lost. Mm. Um, you know, I, I, you know, I read. Um, Lord knows, I read Moby Dick to get lost. Mm. Um, what the the reader the reader should trust though that the investment that you're paying in this novel. Whichever novel it is will pay off. Um, one of my favourite large novels is Richard Powers' *The Time of Our Singing*. And on one hand, it's one of the longest novels I've read. On the other hand, it's the last work of fiction that made me cry. Mm. Um, Yes, <laughs> and I think he's actually up for the Booker Prize. He's he's in the he's in the shortlist of this year. He um, is, yeah,
0: for the second year in yeah. a row, yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, but it's it's. I think there there are things to a big novel that isn't necessarily there in a short one. It doesn't make them better or worse. I just think it's a it's a different kind of experience. And I think um, you 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 enter a novel, hopefully a novel like mine, to sort of immerse yourself in it. A novel that big, you stop being a reader. You become a participant. You become even sort of a voyeur.
3: Yes, I would say do. Um, I would say, you know, it's, it's divided into books. Um, so, you know, imagine that you've got five or six little books rather than one big one, maybe. Um, and I think the thing to do is to sort of go with it, because as with a lot of books that appear to be difficult because the idioms tricky or they're dense, you know, you just need to read your way into it. And you start to realise that actually there's an extraordinarily exciting story here. There's a huge amount going on. It's very funny in, you know, lots of bits, um, and it's you know I remember like reading A Clockwork Orange. Um, it's not not necessarily a completely inapt comparator, though. Clockwork Orange is much shorter. And the first time I read it, I didn't have one of those copies that helpfully has a glossary in the back of the kind of Russian English macaronic language in which it's written. Um, and you know the first ten or fifteen pages of A Clockwork Orange were very hard but then you get the you get the language and you start to you know i mean you know maybe you you don't speak you know Jamaican patois um but by the end of a brief history you will
0: when an author wins the booker there's always the question of what they'll write next but not many would have predicted a series of fantasy novels based on african mythology where did james's dark star trilogy come from
1: you know i have such terrible attention span and you know when it comes to literature i've always been so so sort of um ideologically promiscuous when it comes to fiction i I'm stunned when people read only one kind of book mm. um or read one kind of of genre and I can tell sometimes when writers don't read other genres for one, they usually get race wrong and you're not going find you're not going find how to write. You're not going to find how to write correctly about race in literary fiction. Sorry, literary yeah. authors, it's just it's just the facts. You're not going to learn that from from. You're not going to learn that from that. You're yeah. going to learn that from genre. So I um, it never felt as wild a change in direction for me as it did for some. You know, some other people, some readers. But I I sort of just go with whichever story feels like a mystery that I have to solve, and to me. You know, it's maybe that's what I got from my mother, who was a detective, that you know, writing is a kind of detective work, and um, and that's where that's where I felt that I wanted to go next. There are times I worry about it. I'm like, man, if I'm so scattered, people are gonna not figure out what kind of people won't be able to, to tell what kind of novelist I am. And I'm like, yeah, but maybe that's not a bad thing. I also get bored so easily, and and nobody bores me more than myself. So uh, I'm always I'm always looking for okay, whose life can I have today? It's not even which story I wanna read, which book I wanna write, because the the number of characters that are in my head would always be far more than the number of characters I end up writing down in a book. They're Mm -hmm. just in my head and won't leave. And some of them have been around for years, some just show up, some get their novels, some get their stories, some probably never will. But, you know, it's it's um, the thing that's thrilling about it and the, the, the reason why I, you know, I, I can't identify when people talk about how hard writing is and how terrible that, how much of a struggle it is. I'm like, are you kidding? Every day I, I go, I can't believe nobody has caught on that I do this for a living. <laughs> like, a, I'm, somebody's going to punish me for having this much fun.
0: The fun is there on every page of A Brief History of Seven Killings, which is out now in paperback. The first part of his fantasy trilogy, Black Leopard, Red Wolf, is out now with part two, Moon Witch, Spider King, coming in March 2022. You can pre-order now on waterstones.com. Huge thanks to Marlon James for speaking with me from the States, to Juliet Maybe at One World, and to Sam Leith. I'm Will Rycroft, and I'll be back with another episode soon.